Good morning. I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. My name is Ken. I'm on staff here at Village. Listen, Pastor Mark was really looking forward to sharing a message with you this morning, but his grandfather on his father's side passed away this week, and so Mark is in Ontario ministering to his family there and uh, taking care of that, and so you might want to keep uh, Pastor Mark in your prayers. Matthew chapter 17, we're going to pick it up right from verse uh, 14. Matthew 17, verse 14, and when they came to the crowd, so the they is, if you've been following along with us, they is the A team. It's the zeal team that was up on the mountain, Peter, James, and John with Jesus hanging out with Moses and Elijah. When they came down from, from the mountain to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic. Uh, the Greek word actually there was lunacy, uh, talking about referring to the effects that the lunar system, the moon, had on the brain. Um, and he, so he's an epileptic or has lunacy and he suffers terribly for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. Now, in this story, perspective is everything because this story is told in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but this is an eyewitness account, a firsthand story from one of the disciples who was not up on the mountain. See, Matthew stayed in the valley. Matthew stayed in the valley where life gets messy, where sickness reigns, where there's demons, where there's problems, where there's spiritual powers trying to mess up the lives of, uh, and thwart the plans of God and mess up the lives of humankind. You could say Matthew was on the B team. Maybe that's how you feel. On the B team. Now, some of you might be on the B team because you are currently developing the character and the experience you need to be, and you're hoping to be called up on the A team, giving, given some significant areas of responsibility. But some of you are on the B team because, frankly, that's where you shine the best. And there is nothing wrong with being on the B team. There is nothing wrong with being an assistant. There is nothing wrong with being a team player. There's nothing wrong with being boots on the ground, soldiers, front line of ministry, carrying out the mission of Jesus Christ. Jesus needed Matthew and those eight disciples in the valley with the demons and the sickness as much as he needed Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. God needs you. You're important. And we want to develop that, and we're working on that. Back to our story. I want to reread it, the same story from the Gospel of Mark, because the Gospel of Mark adds a couple of details that are important to this story. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd, and they saw scribes or religious leaders arguing with the crowd. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, they were greatly amazed, and they ran up to Jesus, and they greeted him. And he asked the crowd, what are you arguing about with them, the religious leaders? And one, in the crowd, one amongst the crowd came to him and said, Teacher, I brought you my son, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Later on, we'll, we'll find out that it was a, as a deaf and dumb spirit. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and it foams and grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast out the demon, but they were not able. The information that gets added here is two things. One is the crowd was arguing with the, with the disciples Sorry, that the Pharisees, the religious people were arguing with the crowd. And, and secondly, the, the father adds a few, uh, Matthew thought the illness that the boy had was a medical condition that needed to be cured. That's the language he used. The, the father thought that it was an evil spirit, a deaf and dumb spirit, a different perspective. And that will help us understand what they were arguing from. 
arguing about. You see, the, 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 Jesus is ending his, his earthly ministry here and the social media chatter was focused on one question. Is Jesus the long-awaited Messiah who is going to deliver Israel from Roman rule and make Israel great again? And if so, there was, there was four physical miracles that the Messiah, that the religious leaders believed that only God or God's Son, the Messiah, could perform. The four physical miracles would be, and they, they actually were called the four messianic miracles. For, the, for Jesus to be the Messiah, he had to be able to cleanse a leper. He had to be able to cast out a deaf and dumb spirit. He had to be able to heal birth defects. And he had to be able to raise someone from the dead after three days on the fourth day. Day two wouldn't work. If you're in the Messiah, you got to wait three, four days and then raise him from the dead. See, this story started out as a potential number two Messiah miracle. And the Pharisees, the religious people, were wondering if this was the Messiah, just like everyone else. You see, the casting out of demons was a normative occurrence in those days. The Pharisees did it all the time, or the religious leaders. And they had a three-step formula. First of all, the way they cast out demons then, they would speak to the demon. They would demand that the demon would give its name. And then the demon would speak through the voice of whatever being or whatever person the demon inhabited it. And then the religious leaders would cast out the demon by the name. And so they reasoned if it was a deaf and dumb spirit, the spirit would not be able to hear the command to reveal its name. And secondly, even if it could hear it, because it was also dumb, it couldn't speak its name, and therefore the Pharisees couldn't cast it out. Now I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking there must be more to this, because if I'm trying to cast out a demon and it can't hear me or speak, I would just kind of guess it might be a deaf and dumb spirit. But the, but the, the, the religious leaders, they wanted to be sure, I guess, so they wouldn't do it. Therefore, they reasoned that the Messiah, God's son, would be omniscient or he would know and he would be able to discern it was a deaf and dumb spirit so he could cast it out. That's why it was one of the four messianic miracles. The father did bring his son to Jesus. But Jesus was unavailable. So the father brought the son to the disciples to cast out the demon. Why did he do that? Why didn't he wait for Jesus? Why didn't he make an appointment? This was a big deal. And if this was the Messiah, I want the Messiah. Why did he go to the disciples? Because he assumed that the disciples of Jesus would carry the same spiritual authority and be acting in the same spiritual authority that Jesus did, their teacher, because that's what a disciple does. A disciple emulates the life and the ministry of their leader. Similarly, the religious leaders were arguing with the crowd that Jesus couldn't be the Messiah because Jesus' disciples couldn't cast out the demon. Why would you make an argument based on the disciples? It would make sense if Jesus couldn't cast out the demon that you would say he's not the, the, the Messiah. But if the disciples, his trainer, guys in training couldn't cast it out, why would, they, why would they use that argument to say that Jesus wasn't the Messiah? Because again, they assumed that the disciples of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, would be carrying the same spiritual authority and acting in the same way against the spiritual forces of evil that Jesus would because that's what a disciple does. So let me bring that home. When's the last time you cast out a demon? When's the last time you even rebuked a demon? Why has it been so long? And for some of you, why has it been never? Let's make it even simpler. When's the last time you exercised spiritual authority 
in your home, in your prayer life, and took authority over evil spirits and evil forces and evil mindsets that are attacking you, your wife, your husband, your children, the forces that are against Village Church, that are against your business, against your health. If it's been a long time or if you've never, here's my guess, one of two reasons. One is you're either already living according to the kingdom of darkness, so why would you rebuke the forces of darkness when you're actually in supporting of them? You know, you may have prayed a prayer and you might actually be a Christian, but your lifestyle is actually more lined up with the values of Satan and the kingdom of darkness, hidden sin, real sin, deliberate sin, unforgiveness, bitterness, drunkenness, immorality, and so why would you rebuke any spirit that you agree with? And the second reason for some of us would be that you don't actually believe that any evil spirits are bothering you or those that you loved. If evil spirits exist, they're in Africa somewhere in some Zulu Zulu tribe. And if some of them did manage to swim across the Atlantic, they landed in New York. And the few that did come up to Canada are stuck in Newfoundland, and there's a few that swam up to St. Lawrence and are in Montreal, and then the rest of them are stuck in Toronto in some charismatic church, but they're certainly not here. For some of us, i got to say, wake up! We've got to wake up! And some of us have to taste Jesus for the first time again, and some of us have to read our Bibles again for the very first time. And we realize that deliverance was a normative part of Jesus' ministry and the disciples' ministry here on earth. You just reread any of the Gospels. A common refrain in the Gospels was Jesus healed all those who were oppressed by the devil and he cast out demons with a word. He rebuked, he goes to Peter's mom's house and, and Peter's mom's got, got a fever. And so rather than giving her Tylenol, which you and I would do, he rebuked the fever and the fever left her and impressed the disciples so much that they go out in the town and they bring to, back to the house anyone who was oppressed by an evil spirit or sick because, and Jesus healed them all with a word. Jesus calls the 12 disciples and he gives them authority to preach the gospel and to have authority over evil spirits to cast them out. It was a normative part. I see it in the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel and teaching them to obey or to observe everything I've commanded you. One of the everythings that Jesus commanded and instructed his disciples to do was to cast out demons and to rebuke them and to take authority over the spiritual forces of this dark world. For though we don't, we don't, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, Ephesians tells us, but against the authorities, the powers, the spiritual force of evil in this dark world. The fight, the fight is not your boss, it's not your wife, it's not your kids, it, it's not even sometimes the, the obstacles in civil government and those things. There's a spiritual battle going on right now that's raging. And some of us don't see it. We think, all, we think that all there is is what you see here and you see in touch physically or maybe psychologically. In John chapter 14, near the end of Jesus' ministry on earth, when he was preparing them, he said, um, anyone who loves me, uh, sorry, whoever believes in me will also do the work that I am doing and he will do even greater things than these. What are the greater things that he was talking about? What are the greater things that we're doing today? Is the greater things liking a Facebook post of some Christian author? Don't you think it's a little bit more than that? Think about this. The regular ministry itinerary of Jesus and his disciples included things like preaching, comforting, 
showing mercy, giving value to people, lifting their countenance, praying for people, ministering healing to the sick, and casting out demons. What are the greater things that we're doing today? Maybe we should start with just the basics, not even the greater things. Maybe some of us today would pray and say, God, I am willing to share my faith story if you give me an opportunity. Just praying that you're willing. I'm not even talking about doing it yet. Just literally going to God, if you would bring someone that seems hurting and you would prompt me to maybe share my faith, I would be willing to consider that. Maybe to show mercy, maybe to lift the countenance of somebody. Maybe it would be to spend some time on our knees actually praying for four minutes straight for our marriage, for, for our family, for our children, for an unsaved loved one. Maybe it would be confronting hypocrisy in our own lives first and then the lives of other people. Confronting spiritual authorities and maybe even casting out a demon or at least rebuking a couple that are trying to mess us up. First time I knowingly met a demon was in 1993. The demon was a very powerful one. In fact, it was the most powerful demon I've ever encountered, and I was not looking for it. The demon lived in a man named Danny, who I will call Danny. His real name was Alex. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Danny attended our church, the church that I was pastoring in. Danny was in the community group that my wife and I led. Danny was a Christian. He was baptized. He read his Bible. He came to church. He even gave 10% of his money to the Lord and he prayed all the time. His common prayer was, God, convince me that I'm not going to hell. Danny lived with a perpetual fear of going to hell. And one day, and he was doing all the things that a Christian does. One day he came into my office and he said, Pastor Ken, I, I need you to convince me. I'm so afraid I'm going to hell. He lived in fear and anxiety all the time. And I said, Danny, if I can convince you that there's a book of life and your name is written in the book of life and you'll be judged on that rather than on the things you do, will that be enough for you? And he said, yes. And I says, good, I can do that. I've got a degree in this kind of stuff. And I took him into my office and my plan was to take him to Revelation 20 when it talks about the Lamb's book of life and how we're not judged according to our deeds if we're Christians, but by what Jesus Christ did and when I was trying and it's not hard to find revelation I know it's near the back of the book but as I began opening my Bible this cold steely evil presence that was palpable filled the room and I began to sweat and I began to fumble and papers were falling out of my Bible and this has never happened to me since it's never never happened before but you know when you look up into a bright light for like the sun for a while and then you look down on a page and you can't see anything, there's a big white circle? That's literally what I saw in my Bible. I couldn't see it. And all of a sudden in a, in a voice that I was trying to find the word, the best word is blood curdling, a voice came from Danny that was not Danny's voice and said, you're afraid. And I almost said no. But then it dawned on me that would be a lie and that would give Satan or this, whatever this thing was power over me. So I said something like, yes, I'm afraid, but greater is he that's in me than you that's in the world, so you're going to lose. Or I said something like that. Eventually, I found the book of Revelation, and I read it to Danny, and I got him out of my office, and I phoned my denomination. Because I knew that I was supposed to have authority over that was in my office, and I knew that I didn't, and I knew something was wrong there. And rather than just chalk it up to the will of God that Danny had a demon in him, I phoned my denomination, and to their credit... They actually put me in touch with a man named Arthur who ironically they had asked to leave the denomination about 10 years earlier because he was teaching on deliverance and he was teaching on, the, on how to take authority over the powers of evil in a fairly conservative denomination. 
So what I did is, what I, did is I invited Arthur to a meeting with Danny, and I invited three elders, um, three of my elders. Um, one of them attends Village Church, actually, and they're more conservative than I was. And so we were sitting there, me and the three elders and Danny and whatever demons he had, and we were just chatting it up, waiting for Arthur to come in. And as soon as Arthur comes in, that same evil voice started uttering profanities and things like that to Arthur from Danny, which kind of is bothersome if you think about it, because the demons were totally okay with us being in the room, but when Arthur came in and really recognized real authority, they, the demons and started to manifest. And Arthur, he's five foot three, he's got nothing to prove, he was about 68 years old at the time. He looks at, the, at Danny and he says, shut up, you lying, filthy devil. And immediately Danny came to attention and sat there, and he wasn't happy, but sat there in his chair like this. And then Arthur, without any sensationalism, explained to us elders what was, gonna, what was happening in Danny's life and what was going to happen. And, and Arthur began to systematically cast out a number of demons in Danny's life. And by the end of the night, Danny was even casting out a couple of demons. Why am I telling you that? To keep you awake and be dramatic? No. Because this is real. This is real. Sometimes we get so familiar with the Bible stories, we forget to realize that Jesus really cast out demons regularly and taught us to be aware of the spiritual forces of evil. And then Arthur and his wife began to mentor Bonnie and I, and ironically, they, they showed us things in Scripture we'd never seen before. It's amazing what happens when you have an experience, and you should not develop a theology based on experience, but when you have an experience like that, it's amazing how many things would pop up from the Scriptures that we'd never seen before. It's kind of like when you buy a beetle bug, a new Volkswagen, all of a sudden you realize everyone's got a beetle bug. You see things differently. And I learned a number of things from Arthur and his wife. One of them was that Jesus always spoke audibly to a demon. Or a person with a demon. And why do they do that? Because demons aren't omniscient. They don't know what you're thinking. And they're under no obligation to obey your thoughts. So you can't cast out a demon by looking at it. Thinking that it should go. Another thing I realized from scripture is that neither Jesus nor his disciples ever asked the Father to remove a demon. Yahweh, God Almighty, expects us to cast them out. He expects us to take authority over them. And I remember Arthur saying too many times Christians ask God to do what he commanded us to do. And we do what God commanded and said that he'll take care of. Like we try to earn our salvation. He said, I'll take care of that. You exercise my authority on earth. Walk in a spirit of purity, wholeness, and I'll give you the power. I also learned that dealing with a demon is an issue of authority. It's not an issue of power. Demons have more power. Even the weakest demon probably has more power than I do. It's an authority issue. It's kind of like a police officer, a 200-pound police officer, puts up his hand. He can stop a semi-truck. Does he have more power than the semi-truck? No. He's got authority behind the badge. And that semi-truck driver knows that if I don't stop, there's going to be a SWAT team. There's going to be patrol cars. There's going to be a helicopter in the sky to take me out so that the, the, the semi stops because of the authority. And it's the authority in the name of Jesus Christ that we have that takes care of some of those things. But if we don't believe they even exist, we'll never exercise authority. And here's something important too. Satan and every demon, they don't care if you believe they exist or not. In fact, if Satan can get you to believe a lie, he can control your life. And if he can get you to think that all the demons are stuck in, in Montreal or Toronto or Africa or something like that, you're not even going to be aware of them. And we talk about we're unaware of the schemes of Satan. I could go on and on, but the most important thing that I learned from Arthur and from people who had real authority over demonic experience is one is they believe they exist and they knew how to recognize them how they get us. Secondly, they believed that the name of Jesus has real power and they exercise that. And thirdly, they had a deeper relationship with the Holy Spirit than I have had. Again, why am I saying this? Because this is real. Let me give you a real, very short, condensed 
lesson on spiritual warfare, spiritual warfare 101. One, there's a God. Two, there's a devil. His name is Satan, which means adversary. And he was created by God. His original name was Lucifer, which means shining one. And he was created as one of two that we know of archangels with power. He's got the same power and authority, apparently, as Michael the archangel. Lucifer was incredibly beautiful. He was incredibly smart, talented, and powerful and influential. He was a worship leader. His job in heaven was to lead the heavenly armies in worship to Yahweh. And one day, one day he thought he wanted to get in on a little bit of the glory. Not all of it. He just thought he wanted his fair share. Just a little bit of the glory. And God saw that as rebellion and cast Satan out of heaven and every one of the angels that Satan was able to trick into following him. At that time, it was one-third of the angelic force was cast out of heaven. All a demon is is a fallen angel. That's all they are. Angels were created as ministering spirits to serve those who were to inherit salvation. Frankly, you and I, to do God's work, to arrange things, to help us. And demons are angels who are fallen, who have chosen to follow Lucifer, now Satan, the adversary, and are, are bound, or sorry, are determined to foil the plans of God and to mess up the lives of those who call him Lord. That's all a demon is. How, a demon gets a, how does a demon get any authority in our lives? This is my best understanding. And I know it's, it's, it, there's different books written on this. Denominations start on this. This is my understanding. One is demons get inside authority. They, they do a number of things. They want to oppress us and tempt us and cause havoc from the outside. But they always want to gain inside control. They want to gain a foothold or a stronghold if possible. And whenever they can, they will destroy. So if I open up my life, just like Adam surrendered his authority in the Garden of Eden, I surrender authority in my soul by walking in deliberate sin or even unknown sin. I open my life up or if I play with the Ouija boards or play with things from the occult, go to horror movies, and I don't have my head in the sand. In fact, my head's out of the sand. Some of us have the head in the sand, willfully going to horror movies, just watch them, and if you don't think they're demonic, what in the world are they? Just common sense, just look at them, look at the titles. Or practicing different things in the occult. That's one way, that's an obvious way Satan gets inside authority. It's like we open up, come on in and mess up my life. The other area, like we walk in deliberate sin, we walk in per, uh, perpetual pornography or immorality, bitterness, unforgiveness. We, if we walk in some of those mindsets or behaviors or even emotions, if I function continually in, a spirit, in, in, in an emotion of fear or bitterness, my understanding is that there's a psychological issue there, but a spirit, an actual evil spirit of, of bitterness or of lust or of immorality or of greed will attach itself to me and get a foothold because I've opened up my heart. And if he can, he'll get a stronghold. And at that point, it feels impossible to resist. That's what often happens in the, the spiritual component of addiction is often as an evil spirit. I'm not saying there's not a biological component. I'm not saying that there's not an emotional component. Lust is the same thing. I think that most men can handle lust, the emotion of lust or the mindset. But if we function it and an evil spirit gets us, we're, we're constantly thinking that. We're thinking the thoughts of the devil. And I'm not saying you're demon-possessed. But frankly, we've got to stop spending so much time trying to figure out, is this person spirit, oppre spirit oppressed, possessed, you know, demonized, or just spirit impressed, and just we need to just deal with the evil spirits. That's how they get footholds in our lives. This is incredibly practical. 
This is incredibly practical for fathers, for mothers who are going to pray for our children. Don't just pray for your children. Uh, Good things take authority over Satan's plans because he wants to destroy them. If you've got an unsaved loved one who does not know Jesus Christ, what would you pray? You pray against spirits of pride, pray against spirits of unbelief. Why would I do that? Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says, The God of this age, Satan, has blinded the hearts and minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory of Christ. The gospel of the glory of Christ. And there's only one God of this age, Satan. So how does he do it with all the rest of them? He does it with his demons. You want to you know what this sounds like? I'll just pray for an, un, an unsaved loved one that I have in the name of Jesus Christ. I bind you spirit of unbelief in this person's life and I cancel your assignments against them. You're an enemy of the cross and I release a spirit of faith in your life, spirit of pride. I bind you, I rebuke you. I cancel your assignments against them, spirit of rebellion. You will not have your way in this person's life. I cancel that assignment. You're an enemy of the cross and Jesus' blood has already canceled you and taken away your authority. So I proclaim in the name of Jesus and in faith in Jesus a spirit of belief. Holy Spirit of God, would you go out and convict this person of your love, of your deep purposes for their life, that you created them in the image of God and that you've got a purpose in their life. And that was a real prayer. I have a real person in mind. Spiritual authority. For those of us single, maybe feeling rejected. Spirits of rejection getting you down. Low self-esteem. Depression. And I know that there's a biological and a psychological component to that. But what happens if there's a spirit of despair also attaching itself to you? Let me ask you this question. When's the last time you spoke to those of you who are Christians? When's the last time you spoke words like this to yourself? You idiot, you loser, you damaged goods, no one will love you. How is it possible for those who have the mind of Christ, which the Bible tells us who are believers, how is it possible for someone who has the mind of Christ to speak those words to themselves? What happens if those are the simple words of the devil that he's planted in your heart and you're speaking them to yourself because it's not true? So in the name of Jesus Christ, I rebuke every spirit of rejection and self-condemnation that flows out into people in this room, in our church, and I cancel your assignments, spirits of rejection, condemnation, and we, in the name of Jesus Christ, release the spirit of sonship, of acceptance, of daughtership, and we say that your life is not a mistake. You are created in the love of Jesus Christ, and he has a purpose and plan for your life. You are not a burden, but a delight. Now, I just told you what I personally believe. But what I believe is not important. Not nearly as important as what you believe on issues like this. Because what you believe on issues like this will drastically affect how you pray, the fervency with which you pray, and what you do when your prayers don't seem to be answered. 